As I was preparing this message, I almost decided to design it as a as an open letter to my two older sons. Karsten has been married now for about three months and is living in Boston with Shelley. Benjamin turned 20 last week and is in Georgia in a tech school and got an apprenticeship in a German plastics company. And uh, they're making money and they're on their own. And I'm their dad and they're 1,500 miles away each. And you know what I'm wondering? Are they tithing? What are they doing with their money? You ain't depending on where you grew up and what you think, that that's an odd question or concern for a dad to have for his sons. But maybe before I'm done, you will, you will see why it's such a big deal to me. Are they looking at their money and the practice of tithing as, uh, well, that, that, was, that was a lifestyle option my parents chose, sort of like living in the city and shopping at Savers. You know, you can do it, you can not do it, it's no big deal. Or do they look back and say, that's, that's the rock from which we were hewn. And when they carved us at three years old to take ten cents and put it in a different place, that something was going on in our lives that ought to stay there forever, which way are they going to go? It's a broader concern. If it were just me and the boys, I wouldn't preach on it. I wouldn't afflict you with my burden for them. But it's a broader concern. Last year in Christianity Today, there was an article about young adults and money and giving. And here are a few of these uh, appalling sentences from that article from William uh, James Williams of the Church of God World Service, who studies these things. Our people 45 years old and younger have grown up mesmerized by materialism. There's tremendous pressure on families to spend, spend and spend. And then he adds. I've heard that the generation that believed in the tradition of tithing is in three places. Nursing homes, retirement homes and cemeteries. In other words, he says, baby boomers and baby busters don't tithe. Just, just the old faithful people. I've written to my sons, dropped little statements, talked to them straight up, and uh, tried to teach them. When they were home. And now I watch them come to Bethlehem. I watch them. You know. They come by the hundreds. They, they come through. Some are coming to college. Go to Bethel or University or Augsburg or Northwestern or Crown or somewhere. They come and they, they're here for a while. Maybe two, three years. Sometimes they get a job here. Sometimes they get married. 
And I look out and I wonder, they're the Benjamins from somewhere else. They're the Carsons from from some other church and some other home. And I wonder what their parents are thinking, your parents are thinking. And and what's going to happen now that you're away? What kind of patterns you're going to set for yourself? Ben called me two weeks ago and he brought it up. He brought it up. I'm not going to bring it up anymore. I've said enough. And he had a question that made me see some of the perplexity that young mobile adults have about their giving. For example, he said, I started going to a new church in the end of June. I'm not sure I want to give him my time. <laughs> in other words, he wants to give, I think, he says, he does, and yet he's not at home in this church yet. He's not sure this is going to be his church. And to him, I guess, a tithe looks like an awful lot of money to fork over to somebody else. And that's a real, that's a real concern because you leave home, California, North Dakota, Illinois, you come to Bethel or University or wherever and, and you, you know, check the churches out and for soon six months have gone by and you've been to half a dozen churches and, and you realize the eight hour job you got at the food service that's pulling down, what, $40 a week or something, that, that those uh, $4 is just not going anywhere. Because no place feels like home. I understand that. So I, I didn't know what to say to him. I, I said, well, look, Ben, don't let that, whatever it is that you're concerned about there, be an excuse. Because there are a lot of good ministries and a lot of good churches and a lot of good missions that are worthy of your, your tithe wherever you live. So don't get into a long term pattern using that as an excuse. Now, this little box I've got in my hand, a lot of you recognize. I grew up in the Southern Baptist Church, and the way Southern Baptists provide for the funding of their ministry is through the Sunday school. Well, we don't do it that way here. We do it through the worship service and through envelopes if you're a member or a regular attender or just want one of these. And so I, when I knew I was going to preach on this, I asked uh, Chuck and the financial and property administrators, if they wouldn't stand behind a table, and I don't know if there are any left, I presume there are, to get about 50 of these and put them on a table in that hallway that goes between the commons and the 55 building. And if you're newer at this church, like you've been here a month or a year, but you haven't plugged in, but you sort of feel like, good night. If I'm going to give anywhere, I suppose I might as well give here. And you'd like Uncle Sam to know it so that you don't pay double which I think is a perfectly legitimate thing to do, is to let Uncle Sam know, then this is the design we have for taking care of that. A little box of envelopes. That, and when you put it in, there's a number at the top and you get a quarterly statement that, that one person in this church knows how much you gave. Paul Johnson. And I never talked to Paul, ever, about that. I have no idea what anybody gives. But uh, I just brought that along to show you mine and to say that if you want it, you don't have to be a member of this church to have this. If you just periodically... Feel God is like my son Benjamin leading you to give some here, then that would be a helpful way to do it.
So here's what this message is this morning. This message is an open letter to Benjamin and Karsten. And I told John that uh, after we get it edited and printed up, I want two copies and I'll send it with a letter and uh, they'll hear it. Or if they get this tape, uh, they'll know that I'm preaching to them. And I'm just letting you listen in on how I, as a dad, would go about trying to persuade my sons to move toward the tithe and beyond. You see that title in the uh, bulletin? Let me explain that title as a lead in to where we're going. Toward the tithe and beyond. I chose the word toward the tithe, assuming that a lot of you don't do it and giving you the benefit of the doubt that you're on your way. Okay, that's what the word toward is to communicate. Realistically, I know in the world in which we live that I'm looking out on a lot of non-tithers. But God willing, if my message is biblical and the Holy Spirit is here, you will be on your way before we're done. It is toward the tithe. And then I added and beyond. Because you're going to hear later that my deep conviction is. That as God prospers you, and I've watched students that I taught at Bethel 15 years ago go into six-digit figures. From $40 a week in the food service to $100,000 in 15 years, I've watched it happen. God blesses competent people who give and who are devoted to Him and are people of integrity. It's going to happen. If you have gifts and skills, you're going to grow in your income. If you grow in your income from now until the day you die, you will get to a point where a tithe will be robbing God. And we'll get to that in a minute. So toward the tithe and beyond is the name of the message. What I'm going to do is give you seven reasons, seven arguments. I hope they're biblical. I try to show you they're biblical. For why you should take 10% of your gross income, sign off on it as soon as you get the check and let it go into the kingdom work. Seven reasons. Number one. Tithing honors an Old Testament principle of how God provided for the ministers that he called and for the expenses of their ministry. Let me try to explain what I mean. It honors an Old Testament principle of providing for ministry. There were 12 tribes in the Old Testament people of God, right? 12 tribes of Israel. They moved into the promised land and 11 of them were given land on which to work and make money to do crops and to provide a living. And I want to affirm here at the outset that God intends for most of his people to be in the world Doing gainful employment in all the cultural avenues that are not sinful. God means for you to be out there as salt and light making money. He does. That's very plain in the New Testament as well as the old. The other tribe was the tribe of Levi. The tribe of Levi was called out of gainful employment. Into temple service. And the others were I hesitate to use the word, but I could use it. Taxed to support the temple. The tenth from the eleven is for the one who devotes itself to the ministry in the temple. Let me read you the key verses. Numbers 1820. You, Aaron, 
shall have no inheritance in the land, nor own any portion among them. I am your portion. God says, I am your portion and your inheritance among the sons of Israel. And to the sons of Levi, behold, I have given all the tithe in Israel for an inheritance. So instead of land on which they could work, raise crops, feed their families, instead of that, you get the tithe, Levi, in return for your service, which they perform the service of the tent of meeting. So the principle in the Old Testament was that some people in the people of God are called to devote full energies in the temple to provide the ongoing temple and tent ministry and do no gainful employment except insofar as the people of God are willing to fund that. That's the Old Testament principle. And the tithe did it. Now, here's the question people will ask rightly. Are you sure, John, that. Jesus in the New Testament picked up that and kept it and made it something that his disciples should do. Or was there an, another way of funding missionary enterprise and and uh, ministry in the New Testament? Here's my first response to that question. Good question. The text is printed in your folder. Worship folder is Matthew 23, 23. And it's Jesus in his day addressing the issue of tithing. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You tithe mint and dill and cumin. Those are herbs. And have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These are the things you should have done, namely mercy and justice and faithfulness. These you should have done. Without neglecting the others, namely tithing. So what's real clear here is that tithing is not the most important thing in the Christian life. Jesus has a scale of values. Everything is not equally important in the Christian life. Justice, mercy, love are the bread and butter of the Christian life, not tithing. But. Don't neglect the other. So if you've got a list of things to do, do the first things first, but do the other things too, he says. So the first thought is, well, Jesus puts an endorsement upon Old Testament principle of tithing. But here comes the second problem, objection. Are you sure, John, that he's not just talking to a Jewish audience? I mean, he says... Pharisees and scribes and the temple is still there and the Levites still exist and you still got to have a way to support them. And so all while all that's happening. Sure. But are you sure that after the temple is destroyed in 70 A.D. and the church is established with its unique and different kinds of ministries that Jesus means for the tithe to come over as the way of doing it? Here's my response to that question. You might want to look at 1 Corinthians 9, 13 to 14. I don't know if you've ever thought of that verse in this light, but I was meditating on it and it seems real significant to me. 1 Corinthians 9, 13 to 14. Paul is addressing the issue of how ministers of the gospel should be paid, supported, so they can feed their families, eat and do what needs to be done. And he says in 1 Corinthians 9, 13, 
Do you not know that those who perform sacred services in the temple, he's talking about the temple now in Jerusalem, eat the food of the temple and those who attend regularly to the altar, namely the altar of sacrifice in the temple, have their share with the altar. So he's reminding them of this Old Testament way of doing it. God provided that those who are the Levitical servants in the temple will eat some of what is brought. They are supported by the people who bring their offerings. Now, here's the key verse, verse 14. So also. The Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. How much do you think is carried in those words? So also. Here's two, two possible interpretations. One is, I've just showed you the Old Testament system by which one tribe is split off to sustain the ministry and the rest tithe in order to support the people who give themselves to the ministry. So also, in the Christian church, I call out pastors, associates, missionaries, Ministry assistants, custodians who are to get paid by the tithes of the people of God. That's one interpretation. Here's a broader, more general one. Paul would be saying, I'm pointing to a principle by which those who are called into the ministry of the word are supported by the people who do gainful employment out in the world. So also in the church, no mention of tithing, it's not part of the so also So also in the church, there is to be some who are called into full time work and they are to be supported by the generous offerings and gifts of those who make their money out in the world like they should be doing. In other words, can tithing be shown from this text? And I simply am not going to force it. I'm not going to write into any law book at Bethlehem that there is a sentence in the New Testament Thou shalt tithe or be a disobedient Christian. What I'm doing on this first argument, the others are not this long. This first of seven arguments is saying that there was an Old Testament way of funding the ministry called tithing. Jesus put his approval on it, at least for a season, and Paul harked back to it as an analogy, at least. Okay, at least that's all. At least an analogy for the way it ought to be done in the church. That's all. My first point is if you tithe, if you give 10 percent, you affirm and uphold the principle. Okay, that's argument number one. Number two, when you release 10 percent of your income into kingdom ministries and don't keep it so that you have access to it and disposal over it, you honor the creator rights of God who owns everything, including all of your income. You honor the creator rights of God who owns all of your income. Now, I say it like this because I used to be one of those who, when somebody said God should get his tent, I'd pipe up and say, it's all God's. What do you mean? His tent. And I would kind of hmm, against forced tithing like that. It's all God's, which, of course, is absolutely true. Psalm 24, 1. 
The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. You belong to God. He can do with you anything he wants to do. If you die right now, he has done you no wrong whatsoever. You belong to God. He can keep you alive. He can let you die. He can make you rich. He can make you poor. He owns your clothes, your house, your car, your television, your computers. Everything you got is God's. Which, by the way, just so you understand, is why for 15 years as the preaching pastor of this church, this is my third sermon on tithing. But I talk all the time about lifestyle because I think the issue is the 90 percent. I'm preaching on the 10 percent this morning, but the issue is the 90 percent. And I've got I think I've got eight dollars in my wallet. That's why I had the first service if nobody took any. These eight dollars did not go into the offering plate in the first service like an envelope did. These are mine. And what I do with these is worship or idolatry. That's why I preach. And Lord willing, for the next 15 years, I'll keep talking about that. I'll keep talking about what we do with our money all the time. It's all God's. However, the big however this morning, God is wise. He's wise. Here's an analogy. Suppose God hears a husband. No, a wife, first of all. A wife complained to her husband legitimately. You never spend any time with me. I don't get any of your time. None of your time is my time. And God hears this and he looks to the husband, see what he's going to say. And the husband says, what do you mean? None of my time is your time. All of my time is your time. I work from morning till night to supply for you and the kids. How can you say none of my time is your time? God looks at that and he says, he looks at her and it rings real hollow. This guy's answer. Why? Because this wife knows, you know, that if he doesn't give her any Especially time, a couple of three evenings maybe, and a date or two in the week. If he doesn't give her any of that, he can talk till he's blue in the face about how all his time is hers and it won't mean anything. When he gives her an evening or three and a date, he's not contradicting or denying that all his life is for her, he's proving it. And if he doesn't give her any especially time, well, I wouldn't believe him. I wouldn't believe him that all that other time, that other time is really for her. Nah, baloney. You, you're just having a good time at the office. Trying to prove something to somebody. Or you think that love consists in the abundance of the possessions you can buy for her and the kids, which is crazy, and they know it, and you know it. Now, incidentally, this, this is another sermon in ten seconds. That's why there's a Sabbath. All my time is God's time. You give him seventh, and he'll know it. You take the seventh, maybe not. Close princess, sermon later. Let's, let's go to money. 
All my money is God's money. It's all God's. Well, when you take the first fruits of his harvest, say 10% of it, and give it away to his glorious purposes, then he'll know that you mean that. You don't deny that it's all God's by giving him a tenth. You prove that it's all God's by giving him a tenth. And so my second argument is you honor his creator rights over all your money by proving that you believe that with the tithe. Third argument. Giving away a tenth of our income to the mission and ministry of Christ is an antidote to covetousness. It's an antidote to covetousness. The the last of the Ten Commandments is thou shalt not covet. Jesus picked it up and said, beware, be on your guard against every form of covetousness. And Colossians 3, 5 called covetousness idolatry. Wanting things too much is incredibly dangerous for your soul. Wanting things too much is dangerous for your soul. Hebrews 13, 5, let your life be free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. Every time you give a tithe, every time you write that check off, there's a crisis. There should be a crisis. And the crisis is between God's values being implemented through ministry and mission. And 10 percent more security, more comfort and more fun over here. You have to declare your values to yourself, to your own conscience. That's where the battle is really fought. It's not fought here. Nobody knows what you're putting in anyway. The battle is fought when the check is deposited in the bank and you write in the deposit figure. The issue is what is on the next line. Now, Uncle Sam, he knows how to get his. You don't have to write a check for his. He takes it. But God loves a cheerful giver. And so he doesn't do it that way. You've got to write it yourself. And this is my personal pastoral counsel to you. It's not in the Bible. The first check you write after you put that little deposit line in there is to the ministry. Maybe it's three checks. And then God will get you to live on the rest. God will provide for how to live on the rest. If you do it in reverse, if you say, I will give God everything that's left at the end of the month. Well, you, you know who's in charge of that budget. Satan. And he'll make your toothache. He'll break your clutch. He will see to it, there ain't nothing left at the end of the month. There never is. You start with 90, start with 80, start with 110. There's nothing left. There's a reason for that, and that's number four. Argument number four is that we are to move beyond the tithe as our income expands in order to put a governor on our ever-expanding spending. Here is the rule for why there's never any money left. The rule is this. 
Spending expands to fill the income. There's a name for that probably in some book out there. Spending expands to fill the income. It's a law. Almost infallible. That's why there was a book several years ago entitled Getting By on $100,000 a Year. And it was a serious book. And it's real easy to see why. You gotta rent a hangar for your airplane. You gotta put fuel in it. And you gotta insure it. And you're broke! Spending begets spending begets spending begets spending. Bring it down to where you live. If you buy a second car, it breaks. It's got to be washed. It's got to be fueled and it's got to be insured. You thought you were paying $3,000 for that used car. You weren't. You weren't. If you got a teenager, you were paying another $1,800 a year. He's a boy. Talk about discrimination. What are you going to do about that? What are we going to do about that? How are you going to put a cap on your spending? The law is almost infallible that as our income grows, our spending grows. If you cut it, if you find a way to put a governor on what you have at your disposal, it's amazing how free you are. Michael Card got a great song about the freedom you find by the things you leave behind. It is a great song. For example... This is an easy example. I do not give two seconds of thought, anxiety, greed, or covetousness to world cruises. Nor to $30,000 cars. They are out of the realm of possibility. They don't, I don't even think about them. Now, I do think about upgrading to Microsoft Windows 95. I can afford that. And a lot of other things I'm tempted by. What I'm saying is, if my income were to grow to $200,000, $300,000, taking a world cruise a couple times a year would be like going to Pizza Hut on Thursday with Noel. And getting a personal pan instead of the buffet. Now, what are you going to do? What are we going to do about this incredible expansion? I believe... God means for Christians to move toward the tithe and then as God blesses and you move 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 thousand dollars, you start carrying this percentage up with you. Let me give you an example so you know what I mean. Let's take John Wesley for an example. Wesley was born in 1703. He was a great famous evangelist in the 18th century. And in 1731, he was 28 years old, he began to recognize the impulses of materialism in his life and how he was spending more. And he realized you can live very comfortably in England in 1731 on 30 pounds a year. And he made 30 pounds that year and lived on 28. And so he gave away the extra two. And he resolved that year, God helping him, he would make as much as he could and he would live on 30 pounds. And he made 62 pounds. And he gave away 32 pounds. And the next year he made 90 pounds. And he gave away 60, I think it said 62 pounds here, because he, he lived on 28. He was so 
effective in his fundraising for his ministry that his income reached 1,400 pounds a year. Now, if you can live comfortably on 30 pounds a year, you just compute in your own head what that would be in American dollars. Say if, if 30,000 or 40,000 is a comfortable way to, to live in America, then multiply that times whatever 30 into 140, uh, no, 1,400 is. But anyway, that's a lot of money. Maybe 300 to $500,000 he was pulling down yearly for a while. Now, what's he going to do? He never changed. He said he seldom had within his grasp more than 100 pounds. The English tax commissioners could not believe this. In 1776, they went after him to investigate him and they actually searched his house because they said you haven't paid excise taxes and anybody with your income has to have silver plate somewhere, meaning a nice set of silverware. Everybody paid excise tax in those days on the silver that they had in their house. They couldn't find it. And he wrote them a letter that said this. I have two silver spoons in London and two at Bristol. This is all the plate I have at present. And I shall not buy any more while so many round me want bread. Ache for America. Ache for the church in America. Oh, that Wesley's spirit would be born again. He died 87 years old. God gave him a long, incredibly effective life. He had earned over 30,000 pounds in his life. And in his will, the money in his pocket and in his dresser was provided for. And there was nothing else. And he wrote, I cannot help leaving my books behind me whenever God calls me hence. So he had his books to will. But in every other respect, my own hands will be my executors. I have three more brief reasons for why my sons should tithe and go beyond the tithe. They all come out of a text. I direct your attention to it. Second Corinthians nine, six to eight. Very briefly. Second Corinthians nine, verses six to eight. I want to give you three more powerful reasons for why I pray that God will beget in you this desire. The verses go like this. Second Corinthians nine, six. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Let each one do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. Here's reason number five for why you should let a tenth of your income go into kingdom ministries. It's God's way of bringing about many good deeds for his glory. You see that in verse eight. Uh, those who sow bountifully and, and are cheerful in their giving will have an abundance, it says, an abundance for every good deed. Good deeds are the goal. Good deeds are the goal of money. 
Let your light so shine that men may see your good deeds and give glory to you, Father. Here, good deeds are provided for by money. Titus 2.13, Christ died that he might purify for himself a people zealous for good deeds. And here, good deeds are funded through bountiful, generous giving. So here's the, here's the principle I would lay down. All excess money is given to you that you might show you don't love it by giving it. All excess money is given to you that you might show that you love God and not money by releasing it into kingdom purposes. Argument number six. When you tithe and beyond, you provide a sufficiency for yourself. Giving is a way of having what you need. I say that to you young people. Start. I'm only 49. Sounds old to some of you. Less old to me than it used to. I say only 49. But I will be glad when I can stand. Maybe you'll have me back when I'm 69 or 79 for some special event here. After I retire. I'll come back and I hope I can say. At 79. God has never failed me. Maybe I'll have the guts in those days to talk about giving what I give, but I, that, I probably won't because you're not supposed to do that. But just know that at 49 and I could just go right across this, this congregation, especially older people, and have you stand up one after the other and bear witness to the faithfulness of God that giving is a way of having. Now, that's right here in this text. He who sows bountifully, verse 6, will reap bountifully. And verse 8, God is able to make all grace abound to you that always having all sufficiency. Stop there. Don't we'll read on. It, then it moves to giving right here. This is yours. This is yours to live on. All sufficiency. And then comes an abundance for every good deed. So first there's sufficiency for you and then there's abundance for every good deed. But if you get it reversed and you say, oh, abundance for me and all my investments and all my extra things I want to buy. Well, then the system breaks down. Something goes haywire. It's sufficiency for you and abundancy, abundance for every Good deed. I think this is Paul's way of saying Malachi 3.10. Bring all the tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. Test me now, says the Lord. Test me if I will not open the heavens for you and pour out a blessing until it overflows. So I just say to you who are sitting there saying, I barely make it on 100%. I don't make it on 100%. And you're telling me now. That I can make it on 90% and go beyond that. No, I'm not. I think God is. Test me. Test me. Prove me. That's a powerful word. God wants to be tested. Prove me. I didn't get the permission to do this from the elders, so I can't do it this morning. But you remember five years ago we did this? I stood up and preached on tithing and I said, we will give back all your money. If you give to this church a tithe for the rest of the year and because of that come into financial straits at the end of the year. 
We had one taker, just a slight problem at the end of the year. A young woman came and said, I've got to forget what the issue was because I didn't deal with her. Nobody else. I've never heard a testimony from anybody that I wrecked my life by tithing. I've heard all kinds of testimonies that giving is a way of having. Finally, last argument, number seven. When you give like this, write that first check off to the kingdom work and stretch to live on 90 percent or less. You prove and you strengthen your faith in the promises of God. You know, the most important text there for me is uh, Hebrews 13, 5. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have for, and here comes the argument, the base. God has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Test me. Prove me. Be content. Give this guideline amount and prove me. I will never leave you or forsake you. I will make a sufficiency for you. So, Carson, if you're listening, and Benjamin, if you're listening, it's a faith issue, son. That's why I care. It's a faith issue. God is honored by faith. Money was addressed by Jesus more than sex, more than prayer, more than worship. More than marriage, money, money, money was on his lips everywhere. Why? Because it is a universal crisis of faith every day. Will we trust him? Will we trust him? Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, as we close now, would you put in the hearts of anybody who's struggling with this to just seek wisdom, to seek Enablement to seek a breakthrough, to seek freedom in prayer. Amen.